Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, my guest today is Amy Durakis. Durakakis, is that right? Am I going to get this you right? You did it. You did it. Second oh. one was the winner. Durakakis. It's, it's, it's so easy. Why do we, why is why do we make it so hard? And you have been a strategist, but you're calling yourself a cultural strategist, which is really a nice, a finely defined way of describing what you do. Would you say? Yes. It yeah. took time. It, it took time. Kick the tires on strategy to find what what was what to call myself. It took time. <laughs> yeah. Well, now now it's just a you know everyone rec well not everyone recognizes it, but I think the small people recognize the importance of culture when it comes to strategy and bringing somebody who is an expert in that to the table um, can make a make a huge difference. So. Hopefully we're gonna have a really interesting. Um, I'm sure we are gonna have a really interesting conversation about it. Where are where are you at this moment in time right now? I'm waving. I'm waving to you from Brighton, but um, I I live so Brighton is an hour outside of London. For those that don't know, um, I this is my joke that my husband is in on. Uh, I have a husband in Berlin. I like to see on occasion, and um, a very Greek last name, as Ed has pointed out. So Athens is also quite quite home. Um, and I'm hoping by the time I'm 80, this cultural mix keeps me keeps me fresh because I eat different things in different markets and I meet different people and that the, the make it mix itself um, substitutes the New York that was home for a decade that I miss. So I have had to make my own cultural mix up in order to you know keep it interesting. So um, how how often are you in Athens? Uh, so I do a 40% split between Athens and Brighton and 20%, I would say, is Berlin. Um, I try to work remotely for clients because a lot of them are global whenever possible. But, some, you know, there are moments when it is nice to to meet. And so sometimes location is dictated for who I've got to go wave at. Yeah, very interesting. I just, well, not, I think it's about three years ago now that I spent I mean, I'd been to Athens before, mm. but I hadn't spent any time there. So I was there for a week, living there and working on a photography project with 10 other photographers. Um, I remember you liked it. Did you like it? Yeah, I loved it there. It was, it was, it was really great. Um, and I had, this, I had this amazing conversation with this woman on the, who was a guide at the Acropolis, who had just told me her kind of life story. I think she was something in the, I think she was around 90, Amazing. Like late 80s, and she was guiding people there. And I sat down and I, I took a photograph and then I um, had a conversation with her and she was telling me about how she was a, a devotee of a monk. You know, she followed this monk. And he had this story and he lived on one of the Greek, he had lived on one of the Greek islands um, centuries ago. And it was just, that was her guide, you know, her guide spiritually, she was guided spiritually by this, by this monk and his readings and writings and stuff. And it was just pretty interesting talking to her. Spent at least well, an hour. 90 so, years ago, it sounded like served her well. So <laughs> I think we could all... Sometimes we all need a little guidance. It's something we tend to, tend to forget when we try and operate as individual ships in this. Crazy yeah, world. well, I think what, what really kind of interested me when I like because part of my having not been to Athens before, I sort of had to try and take images of what was happening there, and obviously. Um, this was just kind of a couple of years after the crises. Mm -hmm. And um, one of my fellow students who was from Romania was telling me he he had been there in the middle of it and he said it was dangerous. I mean, it was like bad yeah. stuff was happening. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I, tried, I, I, I did find some fascinating people. Um, I tried to meet with some of the anarchists who were in squats um yeah it was really it was really interesting a really interesting experience anyway i it's a very um a very divergent start to the conversation which should be really about you not about me so um oh, i do you, have one part, party fact on that is did you look at the street art when you're around were you oh, yeah. so 
So I did a, I did a virtual street art tour during the pandemic. And it was, it was through these people that were really in within the community within Greece, with Athens specifically. And they, they like told the stories of all the pieces of art. And I mean, it was just fascinating. So it's so much about language in that city. Um, as is, you know, different realms of art, but it told a very Greek story. Like there was one of a dog and you would have just walked by this dog, but actually this dog became the emblem of that anarchy because it would protect, it would stand in between their protesters and the police. And so it became mm -hmm. like a symbolism. So, I mean, there's, there's so many nuances within Greek culture, not just past, but, you know, it's present and what it's forming now is also pretty interesting. But I mean, that could be a whole Greek anthology conversation on, onto itself but yeah know. i mean i just look like I, I, th I think there was so much to me to think about there because you know crises are happening everywhere and to see how people can exist i mean i always think argentina is a fascinating yeah. case as well they seem to they seem to lurch from one crisis to the other uh to another um and and when i was in athens i didn't i did meet these people who who um had run this coffee place coffee house but it was there was a skateboard um kind of park i wouldn't say park but there was sort of a skateboard area behind it and it was just really it was really amazing it was like a coffee house with a skateboard um park behind it um and they literally you know scraped money together and 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 taken over this old derelict building and built everything themselves um so yeah I was going to say the all the parts that you I know that Berlin holds a place for you and it's a place of exploration specifically for this year. That is what has happened with Athens. So like the, the Berlin that I moved to in 2014, that like energy and synergy had already kind of like, you know, the <laughs> the loft you could just move into with 10 friends had kind of passed. Um, there is not from a real estate perspective, because there's been some, you know, challenges with gold visas. But that energy of creation and entrepreneurship and some of the because of Brexit, a lot of, you know, those really sharp minds are not coming here. They're staying within Greece. They're relooking at the olive farms and the chocolate producers. And there's a lot of creativity. And that's what sometimes crisis does is it, you when you have less and it is a culture of, of less economic, um, there's, you know, challenges. Uh, you, you have to do more in different ways. Yeah, it was it was kind of when you know it was interesting because it sort of it does circle back when I was you know talking to Keeley yeah. about futures and the 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 negative you know the challenge of the negative you know things don't look good. So that's, can you how can you find the positive in the negative? You know, it's uh, and I do think um, you know I, I was I found this amazing story yesterday. Um, I've got personally, I've got super into vinyl really late. I mean, I'm like 10 years behind the vinyl revolution, but I decided, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. And I do sort of like this analog mm -hmm. flip, digital. Um, and yesterday I was looking at sort of one of these um, sites dedicated to vinyl and I found this story of a guy who was running a record store on a boat. <laughs> it's called the rubber duck. And it's, nice. it goes up on the down the canals and he, you know, he parks his boat and the record stores there, you know, and you go find it. <laughs> and, you know, he does festivals and things. And um, but unfortunately, the boat sank. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so, but now he, so then he had to think creatively about they he salvaged all the records, all the covers were damaged, but the actual vinyl was fine. So he sort of, you know, creatively thought about repackaging all this, you know, submerged vinyl into into new covers and selling it at a discount. Um, but yeah, just love that story. You know, clearly it's like people finding their passions outside of the conventional lines and doing things. I think that resonate with people because of that. There, there was an article published last year. It was the New York Times about a chef, and. It was one of my favorite articles I read last year. I'll send it to you. And it would basically, he unpacked all the ways he tried to make money as a chef. 
And through, you know, all of the iterations, the pandemic, he did private dinners in a van, he tried different things. And what he ended up landing on was the ability to be part of a neighborhood, the influx between the ability to like buy fresh pasta, you know, so retail footprint, as well as a restaurant. Um, he he just, he, he tried so many iterations. He didn't give up, but he finally found a formula that worked because he started to value not just his practice, but actually the economic of his time. So I think you don't always get it right. I don't always have it right. I think that there's a, there's a process of learning if you want to stay in a specific craft that, you know, what worked in the past isn't necessarily going to work now. I have to, I have to sell and service new tools than what I've done in the past. And I think that's actually kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, I also think a big part of that, what, what you sort of said too, is um, I remember years ago being in South Africa in um, in a place called Stellenbosch, mm -hmm. and uh, which is kind of like the Napa Valley, but it's actually way, way nicer than Napa Valley um, of South Africa. Um, and I note I was walking down the street and I noticed this massive line and I was like, why are people lined up? And it was for ice cream. Mm. Well, we end, ended up talking to the owner who, who was Italian. And um, she's just a story of like this unbelievable tragedy of um, getting a phone call one morning and um, finding out that her husband had been killed in a, in a, in a car accident. Um, and having to literally transform her life just then and there. And she literally mm. packed up everything and she went to ice cream school in the north of Italy. I think she was from Rome and spent a year learning how to make ice cream and then emigrated to South Africa. And this was one of 10 stores that she had. And mm. um, it was her motivation was all about community and happiness, you know, to sort of move on from where she was so there the, this idea of the emotional value of what you do um and how you that doesn't have a financial value it has an emotional value doing something in the community you know doing some work that you know you feel really good about um you know i, I think is the benefit that people like us have you know you know it's um you know, we're not working for giant corporations. We're working for ourselves. So we have a, a degree of freedom, I believe, in what we do and how we do it. I would agree, and I, I but I, I think it, it. There's two things. I, th I think about. I've been thinking a lot about the privilege in which I can say no, and it took a long time to be able to say no in terms of like at least having a pocket of money to say no <laughs> to the wrong thing. Um, I've also you know, I'm coming up my tenure, 10 years in London. And I had, a, I had a really strong network. I felt very connected when I lived in New York and I moved here with two people. One of those ended up giving me a bill for half my honeymoon. Uh, you know, I moved, I moved into a city that did not open doors at all. <laughs> and I was told at one point by a recruiter, I feel like you've met everybody. And then he's like, let's go through your CV. And the my New York CV was 80% connections. And it, you know, I, I'm doing a talk at the end of the month on the date of the 10 year I've moved here. And one of the, you know, the things I'm gonna talk about was like, it took a decade. It took, it took time to build community, but I've invested massive amount of energy into community because it it, it pays off tenfold. And I don't just mean economic. So, you know, I think you and I are, are big components of community building and also that a career is a long, there's, you know, there's a long runway. And, you know, I, I did this, I did, I, with a group, gather all the, you know, trend reports. So there's like 200 plus, you know, we do this, this is our third year. We did a chat GPT class yesterday where we brought people together to learn. And you don't always get a thank you with that kind of stuff. And that's fine. But I got the most beautiful thank you. And it, it made me think about because I mentor a lot. And I don't always get thank you. And I was like, it's not from a Grigo, Greek ego perspective of why it bothers. But there's something about not saying thank you for, for time. Or it 
and I kind of unpacked it this morning. And I think what I realized is of the 10 people I mentor every month, eight never say thank you. And I realized it's those two that leave a door open. They leave a window in order for us to continue to have a connection. You know, so, and that's what community is building. That's in, you know, saying this is like, I'm invested in, it it enables you to then like re-enter that room. So it's not actually about the thank you. It's about thinking about like, am I also invested in beyond this transactional conversation? And the thank yous I've said in my life have opened up the most amazing doors, but it's also important to, as you know, to to like come with a, I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) get mentality. Because that's kind of sometimes where magic lies too. Yeah, yeah, and I like um, I, you know, I, I think we we are at a moment where I think we are just going to be for, we're just being forced to rethink the way we do things, you know, and 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 the way people work together, and 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 what we're doing this for, and how we're doing it. I mean the. The old established structures. I mean, look at this as we work in an industry or the advertising industry, at least. It's, you know, um, it's 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 all about putting as many people as you can against work and getting paid on the time. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and you know, that thing's unraveling right now. Um, because you know, the no one can afford the expense of people and budgets are so so constrained. Um so yeah, we're also I was going to say, we're not always attracting. So I went to a recruiter hosted an event last year and it was really great. It was called Nobody Wants to Work With You. <laughs> and it it brought forth like a whole bunch of different people in different levels of the career. But like the juniors were kind of saying, we're not given any creative freedom. We have more creative freedom actually outside of agency walls. We get to experiment. We try things. The things that we are the most inspired by are not necessarily coming from agencies. So we're not necessarily shining good flag not even for, you know, a next generation of, but also internally, when you, when you price things out to like to an inch of its life, um, when it comes to time, you know, I, I've remained independent on purpose because every time I've tried to take a full-time role, I, I, I tend to first try and turn it down. It was just good to say no, no was a very powerful way to start any conversation. Um, and and then they really want you and they'll go, well, what do you want? And I say the very thing that you like about me that I bring to you outside perspective, you will lose <laughs> if you just sit me within a desk and you timesheet me to life and you question why I go to things or that I start conversations. There's no space for the thing you really like right now. And so they've, you know, in my most recent role, which was right before the pandemic, and I was able to like carve out what it looked like but they still killed it <laughs> they still killed all the magic so you have to know where you sit within this sector and i don't think walls you know ideas protected by walls are what's going to survive moving forward so so when you think of when you think of your um profession as as a cultural strategist where do you who do you feel are the people who value what you do most? It's the people that don't know what it is. I mean, that is the first of all, somebody that's kind of sometimes going to take a chance. So for instance, I was brought in with a qualitative team for a UK television network to bring like the cultural angle of, of around six different topics. Um, and they were going to do interviews with, with audience, you know, which is quite a form. It's a, it's very normal form of of understanding you know research but i was going to bring this cultural lens so you know it it was it was an experiment for them but you know the layers i brought when we were talking about like true crime or money or um you know what is what does uh family look like you know it was about nuances i look for the nuances the edges and i look for signals that people don't necessarily respond to you know for instance with finance you're not going to get necessarily from a qualitative interview the fact that currently like so much communication and there is we are in the you know the landscape of change but for fi- for female for for so much it's been focused on savings not investing <laughs> You know, so we're in a, there's narrative elements. And then when we talk about true crime, for instance, if you just look at what's been hidden on Netflix, if 
restoring to futurescape and plan for the future of entertainment, we cannot continue to treat victims and victim families the way we have in the past. You know, there's we're at this point of tension when it comes to culture about accountability because we're traumatizing, we're re-traumatizing families. So that's the flavor of something that I bring, or I've just been working with one of the largest tech companies on the cultural zeitgeist of AI. So, you know, they know they know the bread and butter of, of the technology and the LLMs and all those pieces. But what I bring them is sitting them in a room and say, well, well, let's look at porn and let's look at sex, because that's where the interest is. That's These are the two areas. Uh, sorry, porn and sex are the same thing. We look at porn and crime, because <laughs> those are the two areas of adoption when it comes to technology first. So what's going on in there? And then let's talk about the woman who's, you know, who, whose mother died and she fed in all her communication into GPT so she can get advice on a regular basis from her dead mother. <laughs> like, you know, that's the stuff I look for um, to bring forth conversations. And so um, it's the people that are willing to take a chance. Um, and then, you know, I work on traditional stuff too, but like, this is the stuff that makes my brain light up. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I like that. I like that idea of, I mean, you've got people who you've got to push people outside their sort of comfort zone, and 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 you know, as you said, I think those um, you know those those edges are really the interesting where the interesting places can be found, and I, and I think we're so we're so sort of guided by the predominantly dominant media conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's sort of very sort of uh, one dimensional, usually, you know, um, there's, there's not, about- yeah, there's not a lot of angles, you know, there's, it's a sort of, um, I, 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 I do find sort of media's, you know, th- yeah, they do, um, there sort of has been a critique of technology, but they're generally sort of wrapped up in the hubris of it all, and they just sort of can't stop themselves from getting overexcited about it um it's on it's in waves and and ai you know it, it, there is a planetary shift of, of its place within where it is will be in society and all these pieces but it still is created by a, a generally white man located yep. in Silicon valley yep. um who is is who created his ideals? We also see in in the app evolution <laughs> all of the key things that they wanted when it came to like dry cleaning on demand and all the things that the service based investment that was very you know the or you know two thousand tens um, that are struggling right now in order to sometimes make profit. So you know part of it is is to like kick the tires and. I was, you know, I'm secretly Canadian, so I bring in an, you know, I'm able to talk about uncomfortable things. I use my voice for that reason, where I kind of like hedge it with some friendliness. But I've talked to museums, like the head of curators that were opening me museums um, who wanted to attract a new audience. And and I've had to say, well, let's start, you know, start from the beginning that you are a hoarder of culture. You are not defining culture anymore. And they go, oh, but it's like, if I don't say it, who's going to say it? And sometimes I bring in, you know, voices that don't represent mine because lived in experience is really important. Um, but it's good to to knock things around and make people uncomfortable. I think that's part of our role. And if we're going to talk about culture, I don't want to be in a place of just saying, oh, this is I saw this thing that you should take and make it your own. You know, I, I bled re- like I was I lived on that edge when I would fly around the world for Target for the you know the beginning stages of my career was looking for licensing opportunities, but I mean, there was things that were copied. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that, that is the reality sometimes of our work. And I'm trying to find the balance of wanting to be, and you know, blended with culture instead of just a taker. So let's go back to the 200 trend reports. Yeah. What's up with that? What, why, why do we have 200 trend oh, reports? It's a fascinating topic. It's, t- it's, it's, Hot. It's a touchy topic um, because everything gathered is not behind paywalls, but there is a, a feeling of what is knowledge worth. His trend reports used to be an economic driver for a lot of trend businesses. Um, there's been 
there's changes within the sector of what is knowledge worth versus expertise and all those pieces. Um, but we're agnostic in our collection on purpose. There's there's four of us across you know different markets. One person is based in Lisbon, someone is based in, in Shanghai, and someone is based in Singapore. So even though we look very wide in our range, they still tend to be global north. So there's we we always caution with challenges around them. I will flag that nobody has ever asked us to take one down. They've always asked us to add one. So you know, and this year in particular, two things started to happen. They got shared more than I'd ever seen, which was really nice to see people kind of embracing it. Um, but LLMs and GPTs and BARD all kind of, you know, people started to take them and um, figure out how do I read them without having to read them. <laughs> and we did some lessons yesterday with five different creators of them, including a human who had read the 202 trend reports. Uh, and it, it led to a very interesting conversation of what she felt like the tech could have added to the experience, what it took away. We saw what Bard can do. We saw what um, ChatGPT would do with customized um, and everything in between. And there was a really touchy part of the conversation where there was language around, and it wasn't meant as a, it, we bordered on the close of like, ah, this is the junior that I could just hire. And I really put the brakes on that or raised a hand, again, uncomfortable conversations to say, I, if we don't include junior talent, these are not, these can't just be full replacements because there's there, we will lose the next generation. We will lose people that kick the tires against our, you know, thinking. So co-pilot is a nice place to be, but um, we need to continue to nurture if we want you know, new, new blood within this industry. And I am worried about two things. I'm worried about when we slim it down to just like technology has the answer. If you look at it just from a data perspective, I am good now because I was bad before, you know, it took years to know what bad looked like. So I'm worried about a new generation that isn't getting enough sampling time. If you go straight to the answer and ChatGTP goes, you know, you go, here's 10, I need 10 headlines for a cons talk. And you go, oh, number three is pretty good. You know, you gotta, it's the playfulness with technology should be there. It shouldn't be seen as an oracle. Yeah. Well, I think it, I sort of, to me, it's sort of going back to, if we're talking about creativity, we're talking about cultural insight, we're talking about cultural understanding, we're talking about knowing what's happening in the edges. It goes back to me that who who needs to know this stuff and why do they need to know it? And what are they doing with it? So if it is, you know, you go back to the Target example where you are traveling the world and you're looking for licensing deals and that is a economic contributor to the company that, you know, some of these deals will. Oh, they made millions. Yeah. Right. So so you, there's a clear linkage between what you're doing and, and, and the money. Um, in some other cases, there's not a very clear linkage. I, I, there's a lot of um, a lot of posturing. I think all of these trend reports, to me, are PR tools, right? They're just to say, yeah, we get it, and here's why we get it. But um, there's really not a lot of substance there. And really, do they really, I don't know, do they really care? Do they really? Uh, my my view is that um, we, you, we kind of need to know what, is the world just becoming one giant machine? <laughs> well, yeah. So is is everything just if if everything is just automated, and um, there is no um, who who I guess the question to me really boils down to is who wants to break the status quo and who needs to do something different and who needs to look at the world differently. And who's prepared to pay for that? I mean, the dollar sign, I don't know if we've figured out yet. But, but I mean, look, I, I think it's interesting when you ask some questions like the big question is to a museum curator, what is a museum today? Um, where can you ask those questions 
and where can they those questions be meaningful and respected there's there's a lot of people who um you know deloitte's just just this report on ai and the ceos or corporate reactions to ai and the kind of main predominant theme is we want to bring it in to save money yeah of course not surprised right it's not a tool of creativity it's a it's a tool of cost saving um so who whose whose lives <laughs> whose livelihoods depend on changing the status quo to create value right like, I, I mean, I think the world is sort of ultimately sort of divided into two in some of the schizophrenic schizophrenia between the two. There's sort of classic incumbents who don't want anything to change and are right. doing doing everything they can to maintain that status quo. I mean, look at the cable companies or the AT&Ts or whatever, or Verizon's, you know, they just really, they have a we're big infrastructure. They're quasi-government, you know. They don't really have any vested interest and they're just going to, if Apple brings out something nice, they'll be hopefully get hold of it eventually, but they're not going to develop anything. They're just not really that, they're, they're bureaucracies, they're giant infrastructural bureaucracies who don't really value creativity. It, well, that that hasn't, that I mean, look at the industrial revolution. There's all there's always there's always been a tension point between human value and capitalist economy, right? There's a, there's always that like tension point. The tension point within our world has been there's been a very capitalistic view on creativity, and that machine is breaking because people are starting to question how come the costs are so high, and I'm not necessarily always like dazzled by the output. That's the tension point, right? So people are looking for new models, in-house, collectives, singular voices, you know, stripped-down teams, non-retainers. So there's a there's like the 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 mechanic nature of creativity plus AI. We're as you said, we're in a very interesting kind of time. Um, but I also think we need to self-identify. Do we fit in the machine? I don't fit in the machine. Like I'm not, I'm not a good like piece. So I'm gonna be an outlier and I can stand on the outside, but that took time to know my place. But my economic trajectory is different. It's a very different path than if I'd stayed in New York and I like, you know, was the CSO that I, you know, I could have done that. But nourishment, you know, comes beyond just economy of scale too, right? True. Yeah, well, I mean, so, I think I think that's you know the observation is that the there's the questioning the value of creativity, um, and I, I, you know you know like I think that problem is like absolutely right. It's it's like we've been paying too much. The, the, we haven't there hasn't been a clear line to the value that 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 money is. What's the ROI on that? Um, and um there are all these other things that are emerging that allow us to do things cheaper faster and then there's this whole slew of people who create can be influencers or creators on our behalf so yeah the the, the questioning i i do think though that if you go down that sort of rabbit hole of the sort of marketing creativity it's sort of it, it gets very small very quickly oh very much so and right. also a huge problem is we have we don't know where audience is we focus so much on dazzling ourselves <laughs> than we do the audience in which is actually going to engage with them you know that you you see that within our obsession with awards and all of the all of the trinkets that come is the you know the hyper reality of our audience is not necessarily captured that's one of the biggest challenges to 
I see it a lot within the UK specifically because there's a lot more nuances within socioeconomic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the whole you know. big thing right now that, you know, no one knows what people are living in ivory towers in London, which is not, which is a disproportionate representation because it's uh, 50%, 55% of GDP. And, yeah. and, you know, that's not the way the rest of the country is living. And, you know, you got Richard Huntington and, you know, saying you know, people need to get out and see how real people are living. Um, Can I yeah. tell you my, my favorite is, so this is a party fact. If Berlin left Germany, the GDP would rise. <laughs> like if it was like, you know, when we're going to separate and become our own country called Berlin, Germany's econ economic power would completely shift. And so I would get asked a lot when I work on like more German centric projects In the beginning, they'll go, you don't know German. First of all, you're a foreigner and you live in Berlin, but my husband works for the largest cruise company in Germany. So he does brand redirection for them. So I've been on 20 on cruises with 2,500 Germans for like three weeks. <laughs> so that's my party line to say, you don't think I know Germans. I know Germans more than you know Germans because <laughs> I end up, you just surround myself with an ecosystem. And I'm telling you, then they hear me. So I think sometimes we need to shift up the perception and also put ourselves in situations that, you know, are not necessarily are known. You know, my German is good enough to get out of getting arrested. That's about it. Um, but I still put myself in, in situations yeah. to learn. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, it's, I think that's a great point is you have to really, you know, what it comes back to is, is, as you said, I think that you said this at the beginning as well is sort of, um, understanding the value that you can bring and being confident about it and maybe uh thinking bigger thinking bigger you know um it, i i do i do think that sort of what i thought was really interesting about when i was talking to keely was ultimately is you know where does the present end and the future begin you know it's sort of the future is what we're basically what strategy is trying to do. It's just the future is some time that isn't today. So it doesn't, I think when we talk about the future, we tend to think of it as a 50 years, 30 year horizon time is 10 year horizon. Where I think, yeah. yeah, but I actually think what people want is a near future that presents opportunity so how do you know if we aren't an incumbent who's about protecting our status quo but you are about a new company that needs to position itself to be effective in a food market or you are a new museum or you're a new art institution or you are anything really i think i think it the big picture of how do you see the world and how does how do you you know how do you think the world's going to see you and who are you and what do you stand for and what you believe in there's just fundamentals sort of branding that don't go out of fashion but they're not always put into practice they're not always put into practice the thing is that i think if you follow the if you follow the trail down to the diminishing uh world of output as creative campaigns i don't think that's where you should be i think you need to be up at the very top where you're having conversations with companies about who they are and and even if they don't have that discipline being able to explain what that is and why it's important um and why having cultural understanding i mean one, you, one of the you know one of the um the Jay Shire Strategy Awards a few years ago, um, there was this really interesting case um, and it was to do with Harry's, you know, Harry's, um, the shaving company. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was the first time like a freelancer had, had won. Um, Amazing. Like, yeah, so never happened before. Um, sorry, we got a bit of a siren problem. Oh, I can't hear anything. Oh, good. Um, yeah, so I think was in this case, this was, uh, you know, a really interesting. The founders of this company, when they were asked, who is your customer? 
the answer was it's people like us. Mm-hmm. To, which to which the response was that means the value of your company is 50 million versus 3 billion because there aren't um, enough, right? Oh, that's interesting. So who, you know, so then you get into another question, then who are we for? So, you know, I think I think that those big questions are where you find the interesting opportunities to me. I mean, that that in it that's putting into my file of brain, that's amazing. The the other thing I would say about the future in in general, and this is this is not just for strategists, is it's not a passive thing. We're not just a if you rem- if we if you think of it as just like I will witness what will happen, <laughs> that's a very bad stance to be in, and that's where we've ended up with so many of our challenges. But I once I used to, you know, here's my carbon footprint because I lived in pre-pandemic. I would take 72 flights a year, which was ridiculous because I would have to commute in because remote wasn't really considered a thing. And one day I went into the Berlin airport and it completely changed and everything was non-human. And I still went and stood in the line and the woman directed me about five times, go over there. And I say, I'm making a choice right now on purpose because I want, I want a human to remain. And by you, <laughs> Shushi, like telling me to continue, you're also taking a stance in what you want. And it kind of got her thinking. And I think those are important. You know, we have a massive, it's not dissimilar in the UK, sorry, in the US right now with theft within, you know, stores is like unprecedented levels right now. And one of those, those key like tender hooks of it was when you have no people around, <laughs> There is no sense of like connection to the place in which you're shopping. So, you know, when you when you put in those mechanisms, as much as they have saved money, they've also cost extraordinary amount of money right now. So those things, that's when you start to think about forecasting. Well, what is the, you know, what is the reality in which we want to partake in? And I think we just have to stop remaining so passive if we want a better future. I think, I don't know, I think there can be positivity we can bring in in terms of our outlook, um, but you have to be a participant. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the problem of, uh, you got to think of potential outcomes. I mean, like people are are pulling those self-checkout machines away, you know, from grocery. So, you know, in a way that they, they don't anticipate I mean, people don't have, you know, and it's going to happen with AI, you know, everywhere. It's going to, that's going to be the big thing, which you'll, you know, they'll start implementing a lot of AI things and people will just say, I don't, this is wrong. And, um, you know, there'll, there'll be an adverse reaction to it. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's it's not a passive, it's not a passive thing. It's a, it's a, well, it's a, the future is a dynamic thing and it's constantly changing. And I think that's what um, is catching a lot of people out is that, uh, that 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 things are moving faster in a way that they don't understand and and they don't have the they don't have the intelligence inverted commas to 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 really to really understand. And and I do think part of the problem is we've got. Um, it's got back to that passive lack of connections. We have got the sort of Silicon Valley product manager who, yeah. is, who is about A-B, A-B testing. And um, it's 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 the school of the MBA. And I and I'm pointing the finger at the MBA. It's just like it's really not the holistic, true um, well, it, education that's, that's immensely valuable. It sort of it leads to a certain type of individual that does things in a very specific way that tends to be a little a little myopic i went to the dubai futures conference and there was a case study talking about a hospital and he was like well where is the tension point of like where things go wrong and where could things go right when you talk about ai and implementation and they had talked about that these like very you know mba we can use them as a general term marketing consultant, John Oliver uh, McKinsey special, what have you, had come into the hospital and and found all the points that were wrong and were willing to like revolutionize as to how things could change. But they never asked 
<laughs> we never asked some like very human questions that were required as to what was the tension? Why were certain cultures not willing to talk about, you know, skin damage and all of these pieces? And so what they were saying is actually, if we can find again, that co-pilot mechanism where you go, what is human insight and nuance and understanding? Keep that within the framework, but they need to build with. And that is where we have we have a dissection right now because the speed in which we're moving, we saw it last year. Last year was unprecedented. I mean, at one point after doing a year of AI research, I developed imposter syndrome against a, against the technology, like pretty, pretty fall down the rabbit hole of do I have value and all these pieces. And honestly, the thing that I will lean into this year more than anything, and I've already kind of started, is they will hire Ed. They're going to hire Amy. We have to be the most human element of ourselves in order to kind of stand out. And that's really a core. So it's not necessarily about the PR-ness, but it's about the personality. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that goes back to, um, you know, I, I think I think that's the benchmarking. The I, I think we might have forgotten what it means to be human. <laughs> so, yeah, I you know, maybe that's we need to be reschooled and reminded of like what are the fundamental things. There's something, um, you know, having a conversation with some companies about this. You know this. This idea that um, are you by providing an AI for the elderly, are you actually providing a solution for loneliness? Are you or are you just bandage? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think I think that goes back to the Silicon Valley model that that, that technology is a universal panacea and a, a solver of problems, and because the other stuff is too hard so i think you get you know you sort of get this two-tiered thing where you um have people trying to enforce sort of big platforms um i do i just think it's fascinating that you know google at the moment right i mean there's this, this story i put up the other day the cmos tried to call google 12 times has not got a call back to, to find out about some advertising product and it's because Google is stripping away all their sales function and replacing it with AI. Yeah. So, you, you know, th th there is a sort of, uh, we are going to, we are going to end up with a sort of a machine. A, we, we've had it. It's just an extension of what we've already had. The push button phone, press one, four, right? I mean, these are all systems in, in, in search of efficiencies, right? And we're going to get more of them. There's no doubt we're going to get more of them. They're hoping that they're going to be smarter and more intelligent and that AI is going to be the way to do it. But we will move further and further away from human contact. Well, that's why I will, I will, you know, to, <laughs> to whatever 80-year-old part of my career where I stop is I will always advocate for audience because if there, first of all, we don't all learn the same way. We don't all require the same mechanics in order to connect with the business. Some people that will be fine and for others, it won't. And a good example is I worked with a big tech company and I was helping rate very randomly how-to guides about their platform. It was like, how come they couldn't do this? And I was interviewing some small business owners, incredibly successful independents. And you know, one of them said to me with like almost shame, which is crazy. He's like, I've built my business, multi-million dollar successful business by watching YouTube videos. And he's like, I'm not really a reader. And he was looking, saying it with a, such a disadvantage because he he educated himself in a very different way. And I was like, if we continue to put all of these plate checks and balances in place for one form of connection, we're missing, we're missing how other people actually connect and learn to the disservice of the business too. So that's the thing that I think is really the challenge is we're, we're saying this automation is for everyone and it's not necessarily the case. Sure. So um, if a 24 year old wants to be a cultural strategist. What do you do? What should they be doing? You, oh, you get lost in the world. You really become a participant and you live with as much color and variety as possible listen to people outside yourself 
um, put yourself in situations that you may not have been in, uh, push past the, the tropes of what you know. Don't just look to TikTok for trends as an oracle. Um, you know, there's just as much information to be learned from grocery aisles. Uh, be willing to look at culture with a wider lens than youth culture. Um, you know, my my least favorite projects are Gen Z plus whiskey. <laughs> you know, like that's limiting. Um, view the fact that if you want a career, you're going to have to be able to talk about culture at my age. And I'm in my 40s, you know, early 40s. Is the same way that you could when you're 24. 20 years later, you need to still have the same appetite and interest in culture as you do at 24. And it's harder because, you know, your friends won't always be telling you things. I have you, so you have to make new friends, but it means basically living like with life with the lights fully on um, and, be, and being willing to know that there's not always an economic value for your upskill that your curiosity is part of your personality is as much as it is part of your job title. And so what that, about um, inspiring figures or things that people should be reading or looking at just generally to think about as just about to learn about? My, so my hands down favorite thing, and I'll share it with you after Ed is this woman named um, Jody, who's based in Toronto and she's wonderful. I send it to you. She, it's the recess guide. And so she asked 30 of us globally about what was inspiring us instead of the, the usual like PDF of Amy really likes da, 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 da. She gathered everything by category and that lives on my desktop and nothing lives on my desktop. And it is the benchmark of both uh, freelancer, you know, uh, energy because she's an independent. So let's champion that. So we know how hard that is to put the time and effort into because it's about 80 pages, but there's like a, you know, 25 books that you should read places you should visit conferences, people you should follow. So I would say that's a really great starting off point for getting lost in other people's imagination. Very cool. Um, any, uh, any final pointers? What we should be, what should we be looking out for in 2024? What should we be, where should we be um, foraging for culture in 2024? Outside of your desktop. <laughs> really, it's one, it's one place. And actually there's some, we're, there's a really interesting need that's opened up where it's starting to get fulfilled again with in-person events. So try and seek out meetings of others because sometimes that's where magic lives. I don't think we always need to sit in an office, hint, hint, hint to all agencies really doing a pullback for, for people, but there needs to be these synergy moments of connection. So seek out connection, no matter if you work as an independent or as you work as, you know, with part of a team, look for others because I mean, community, as you know, Ed, that's like our core. Well. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thank Great you. Stuff.